This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. In this episode, we're looking at a couple of mass UFO sightings that have happened in New Zealand. This first one's from 1970. The website is livenewspress24.com. The author is uh, Nia Dang. It looks like the article came out uh, today, January 28th, just this morning actually. The title is, A Giant UFO Seen by 400 Students and Teachers in New Zealand. Now that's what you call a mass sighting. It says, A 1970 event that occurred at Richmond School in Napier, New Zealand. Among the witnesses of the giant UFO were the principal, teachers, and 400 students. The, this event was mentioned in the Napier Daily Telegraph on May 8th, just one day after the sighting of the giant UFO. Of course, we said 1970. The headline of the newspaper was, Mysterious Object in the Sky is Seen by Teachers and 400 Children. I think sometimes kids make the best witnesses because they just... They just tell you what they saw, and they also tell you the emotional response that they had. It says, A huge unidentified flying object was seen in 1970 and was described as a hole in the sky. Witnesses said there was an unearthly silence. When children are normally very noisy, everyone stopped playing to look at the giant saucer-shaped UFO. Now, this had to be like a scene out of a science fiction movie. I mean, you have all these kids outside playing at recess or whatever, and you know how noisy... Uh, elementary kids can be, and suddenly this giant saucer-shaped UFO uh, shows up overhead, so big that it's described as a hole in the sky, and you can imagine these kids just looking up aghast at this thing. W. Billing, the school principal, said the object was moving in a southerly direction. At first he thought it was a plane, but it was too bright. When the teacher noticed the giant UFO, when the teachers noticed the giant UFO, they were puzzled. Some said that it even shone on the side facing away from the sun. The object seemed to float in an area between West Shore and Tonjoia. It's a T-O-G-O-I-I-O, rather. And then it says, uh, after being suspended for three or four minutes, the object began to move away. It then moved at odd angles, finally transforming into a huge ball with a glowing transparent center. Quickly, it flattened out again and continued to recede in a straight line until it disappeared into the sky. Suddenly, it appeared again, like a huge glowing planet, but only to disappear once more at high speed. It just seems, it just seems obvious that these things must want to be seen to be doing this kind of stuff. I mean, showing up, hovering over a school like this for three or four minutes, then darting off, then reappearing. Says the director assured that it was not a weather balloon. It was a solid and apparently metallic object. Well, that's for sure. Citing for history, one of the teachers, A. Coveney, claimed to have read reports of people seeing the UFOs, but he'd always been skeptic. He believed that half of Napier had spotted the object since everyone at school saw it. The sighting had stopped the usual sounds of noisy games. The whole area seemed so unnaturally quiet that it was strange. It wasn't just the movement of the flying saucer that were supernatural, but also its appearance when it changed shape. Well, there you go. So many, 
times, but people look at these things, and the simple explanation is that it's some sort of large mechanical, uh, you know, futuristic craft that the government has created. But I don't think the government has the scientific advanced technologies to create these shape-shifting objects that totally violate the laws of physics. It says there was an iridescence about it, and it seemed as if it was a real hole in the sky, as if you were looking through it into another dimension, the teacher said. Now that's interesting. This teacher perceived that. This is back in 1970 when there wasn't you know, nearly as much talk or exchange of ideas about UFOs, but they're saying the possibility this thing's interdimensional, and that to me makes the most sense. It says, despite the fact that the newspaper that, that rescued the news has certain sketches of what the witnesses saw, the quality of what they reach today is quite poor. So they have these sketches that were made there, and it just, it looks like people assault, maybe this thing was some sort of attempt at camouflage, or like I said, maybe it was going from one direction to the other, but you can see from the drawings that it starts out as kind of this ragged, ob oblong shape that just seems to be cut through the sky, and then it, it almost just uh, converges converges into this oval shape, and then into what you think of as a classic flying saucer. That converges back into almost this donut shape, which gets smaller and smaller and disappears. This Clearly, this thing is appearing out of what seems to be one dimension, coming into our dimension, going from this really uh, ephemeral shape, converting it into what appears to be a solid object, classic, you know, three-dimensional metallic flying saucer, and then converging back into this ephemeral shape, this donut-shaped, uh, almost like a... I, I don't even know how you would describe it, but it, it's just it's, it's like a non-material object which gets smaller and smaller to the point of disappearance. Something's obviously going on with this thing. It's fading in and, and out from one dimension to another. It says, despite the fact that the newspaper that the newspaper that rescued the news has certain sketches of what the witnesses saw, the quality of what they reached today is quite poor. You know, that's weird. They had to rescue the news. It's almost like these, sto these stories are just memory hold. The mass sighting of the giant New Zealand UFO joins a list of other sightings with a large number of witnesses. Perhaps the most remembered being one of the most recent was the one that happened at the famous aerial school in Zimbabwe in 1994. Of course, we've talked about that here. That's where the kids actually uh, witnessed this UFO landing and had interactions with the entities that, that uh, came out of that thing. On that occasion, the little ones not only saw the flying object, but also it landed and its crew members let everyone see. Of course, we know what happened there. The, the crew members, the entities that emerged in that craft, were, were communicating with those kids telepathically. The next case that we look at is from nzherald.cu.nz. The title is Crew Remember the Day UFO Was Spotted Over Keikura, 40 Years On. This is from the New Zealand Herald. It says, It was New Year's Day 1979 when the world awoke to the news that strange lights had been spotted by six people on a plane off the New Zealand's South Island. Was it a UFO? No, said skeptics. It was Venus. It was squid boats. It was radar returns from a field of cabbages. This sounds like this sounds like the typical uh, ridiculous debunking responses to UFO sightings so far. 
But 40 years later, the pilots and four passengers are adamant it was from none of the above and frustrated at being unable to find answers. The Herald on Sunday tracked down each member of the group around the world. One is a mango farmer in Hawaii, while another is 80-year-old newlywed after her royal wedding-themed ceremony at her retirement village the night before Megan and Harry's big day. Okay, blah, blah, blah. The case brought instant fame but no fortune for some before bringing shame and anger when they were accused of hoaxing the sighting. This is classic depersoning. And sometimes you see these cases when they're really associated with something that the government does not want exposed. It goes on and says, It broke up a marriage. At the end of 1978, Australasia was in the grip of UFO fever. In October, 20-year-old Frederick Valentich disappeared while piloting a small Cessna 182 aircraft over Bass Strait while heading to King Island in Tasmania. Described as a flying saucer enthusiast, Valentech informed Melbourne Air Traffic Control he was being accompanied by an unknown aircraft. We have covered that case before. Probably deserves a look back at that one. Two months later, across Tasman on December 21st, safe air pilots Vern Powell and Ian Pyrie spotted strange lights while flying from Blenheim to Christchurch. A producer from Melbourne's Channel Zero, now Channel 10, Leonard Lee heard the news and tracked down reporter Quentin Fogarty, who worked for the channel but was on holiday with his wife and children in Christchurch, staying at TV1 journalist Dennis Grant's home. Freelance Wellington cameraman David Crockett was also hired, along with his wife, Nagari, who operated the audio tape recorder. The group were invited to jump aboard Safer's Blenheim-based aggressive plane named Merchant Enterprise, Late on December 30th, which pilots Bill Startup and Bob Gard were taking on a newspaper run between Wellington and Christchurch. Shortly after takeoff, the pilots noticed strange lights appearing and disappearing over the Kikura coastline about 20 miles west. While we were filming a stand-up to camera, Captain Bill Startup shouted to us that we should go to the flight deck immediately as something was happening again, says David Crockett. He managed to film a rapidly moving bright white light. With the conversation coming through my headphones from the pilots and radar from Wellington, it all started to get very scary, says Jerry Carkett. I was able to stand up a couple times and was able to see these bright lights coming and going. Quentin was a real mess and grabbed hold of both my hands and started shaking. I didn't even have time to worry, my, worry about myself. I had to help him. That's weird. These people seem to have had a really uh, negative reaction toward this UFO sighting. The plane landed at Christchurch to unload newspapers, and the pilots asked the news team if they wanted to go back through the area they had traversed. Nagari was too frightened, so was too frightened, so he stayed. So they stayed in Christchurch. The others reboarded the plane with Dennis Grant in Nagari's place. David had used up all the film in his 16 millimeter camera. Grant says. Quinton called me sometime after midnight from Christchurch Airport to see if I could provide a fresh roll of film. I could, but there was a catch. I wanted to get on the plane for the flight to Blenheim. The plane took off at 2.16 a.m. About three minutes after takeoff, the group saw a bright round light to the right. The airplane radar showed a target in the same direction about 18 nautical miles. Fogarty would later be heard saying on camera, 
Let's hope they're friendly. Crockett filmed the light for several minutes as it appeared to travel along with the plane. Now, they got some pictures here, and of course, the quality is not great, but clearly, this looks to be some type of an orb sighting. And this one, like so many of these things, is just trailing along with the airplane. When they turned toward it, the light seemed to react by moving away from the plane. The experience itself was extraordinary for her, he says. Just being on the cramped, noisy flight deck of the Argosy, barreling down the coast in the dead of night, was exciting. Factor in a row of pulsating, hypnotic lights hovering outside the window, and it goes to another level. After landing at Woodburn Airport at about 3 a.m., the group stayed at the two pilots' homes in Blenheim. Startup's daughter, Tracy Moore, remembers her father coming home in the middle of the night. Everyone was at our house talking about it in the middle of the night. They were talking about lights and unexplained radar. At one point, I remember Dad saying it might be a good idea to report it to the police. It was during the Cold War. There was a bit of paranoia around. Mom said, you can't sit on this information. It was scary at the time. It was a big unknown thing that had happened, and we had all the adults around discussing it. There were actually no jokes being made. Fogarty interviewed the pilots before flying to Melbourne to give the recordings to Channel Zero. The footage featured on primetime news that night and a longer documentary piece screened later. This tells you they took this sighting uh, seriously. People on the ground saw it, people in the airplane saw it, and they had recording of it. The news went around the world and was featured by major news media, including the Herald and by CS anchorman Walter Cronkite. This, again, is January 1979, and they have a picture here of, of a couple of newspaper articles dated January 3rd, 1979. This really made big news back then. It says the skeptical reaction was immediate. Explanations included that it was Venus, drug runners, light reflector cabbages, or squid boats. Of course, we know this is all nonsense. The Robert Muldoon government ordered an inquiry by the Air Force, which concluded that the sightings could be explained by natural but unusual phenomena. That's pretty tricky, isn't it? Leonard Lee traveled to the U.S. to give the film to Bruce Maccabee. Of course, Bruce Maccabee is really a, a world-famous uh, in, in the UFO community as far as somebody who's able to uh, analyze video. I think just one of the best. An optical physicist who specialized in laser technology and worked for the U.S. Navy in Maryland, Virginia. He was also flown to New Zealand and Melbourne to interview witnesses. He concluded the event involved unknown objects or phenomena fitting the definition of UFOs. One would think that the conclusion that several of the sightings involved unidentified objects flying with impunity in the New Zealand airspace would have been sufficient to start an even deeper study of the UFOs, McAbee says. Well, unless you were afraid of what you were going to find out. But it wasn't. The sightings were relegated to the, dust, to the dustbin of history, forgotten by all except the witnesses and a few ufologists who discussed the various sightings events for years afterward. It says, he says that 39 years after Kiyokura footage emerged in December 2017, of course that's six years ago, seven years ago now, six years ago rather, major media carried reports of UFO sightings by U.S. Navy personnel during training exercises. That's interesting. He says they involved multiple witnesses and multiple sources of information, such as battleship radar at sea level, radar in the Navy jet planes, visible in infrared video cameras and airplanes, but the incident appears to have been forgotten. History appears to be repeating itself. After his world scoop, Dundon-born Quentin Fogarty 
suffered from nervous exhaustion and ended up in a hospital for a couple of weeks. That's interesting. That seems that seems almost a little suspect. The level of initial skepticism, though surprised and at times overwhelmed me, I certainly did not expect to be accused of hoaxing the whole thing. That cut deep, it still does. Now, this is classic depersoning, you know, and when this happens to uh, people that cite these things or report them, I think the best thing is just ignore it and go on and don't even contemplate it. I mean, this is just, this is just, uh, you know, as they say, when you're over the target, that's when you get the most flack. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The local daily tabloid in Melbourne branded me as a UFO reporter, and that stuck for a short time, but it did not take long for me to break back into my role as a TV journalist reporting on more mundane matters. Yeah, it's just awful when media treat people this way, I think. Fogarty, a father of four who still lives in Melbourne, says he endeavored to report the story as accurately and impartially as he could. We had film our own eyewitness accounts and confirmation from the flight crew and air traffic controllers that we had stumbled into something astonishing. So there you go. You have the pilots in the air. You have air traffic on the ground. Okay, both of these expert witnesses. You have the journalist involved. And you have a video record of this as evidence, plus the, plus the testimony from all these sources. Fergie, who started his career at Dunedin's Evening Star, wrote a book about the experience in 1982 titled Let's Hope They're Friendly, and remains convinced that enhanced computer analysis of the film might get closer to finding answers. Forty years down the track, this is still unfinished business. Startup now lives in a rest home in Blenheim. He had a stroke three years after the incident and had to retire from flying. Wow, now that's interesting because, especially in light of the Stanford study that we talked about, that showed all these folks being injured from close encounters with UFOs. I just have to wonder if there was some connection. It says he wrote a book the following year, The Keokura UFOs. His daughter says to clear up the misinformation during the rounds. The same year, Startup then took his wife Shirley and children to visit Bruce McAbee in the U.S. Obviously, he was impacted by this. Shirley, who died in 2012, was interviewed in 2008 and said a psychiatrist had thought the men had lost their faith in God and we're seeing angels. That just seems like a ridiculous diagnosis from, diagnosis from a psychiatrist. I mean, my goodness. Wow. Startup, who was not willing enough to be interviewed by the Herald on Sunday, told a documentary in 2009 what it was all those years ago. I wish I knew. People can think what they want, but they were not in the aircraft. Startup did not dwell on the experience, Moore says. Over the years, there has been periodic interest, so he was being visited every one or two years from reporters all over, but he didn't bring it up. She didn't get the impression he truly believed it was a UFO. He'd seen something that he did not know what it was, and his colleagues couldn't come up with an explanation. He had no thoughts that he ever communicated to us. Well, it could be one of those type of folks that rather than just, you know, let their life be turned upside down by a UFO encounter, decided that, yes, it's something, I don't know what it is, it's nothing that, you know, it's man-made, 
and just kind of went on with their life. As far as you know, somebody losing their faith in God, uh, as a psychiatrist implies, that just it's it's not necessary. I mean, we live in a world of unexplained, and I think that's separate, and independent of a person's, uh, you know, belief in the Almighty. It says the guard has never said too much about the strange lights. One of the issues for me is we were just doing our job. We suddenly had to justify ourselves. We didn't know what the hell it was. We didn't expect to see anything. It was a bit tense as it got closer to the aircraft. I got over it. Have I ever seen anything like that again? No, I haven't. Do I believe in UFOs? No, I don't. Pilots see a lot of unidentified flying things. That's interesting. So he had this experience, but still says he doesn't believe in UFOs. And maybe that's just because of so much societal pressure on these guys as pilots to not recognize uh, the phenomena of UFOs. Gazana says, would I tell anyone if I saw anything like that again? No, I wouldn't. It's not worth the hassle. Wow, that just shows you the power of depersoning witnesses. It's remarkable. Research followed the sightings, but he's research followed the sightings, but he says some were sham. They used newspaper articles for their research. Well, it sounds to me like he wasn't too impressed with the newspaper reports on what he saw. A guard stopped working for Safe Air in 1990 and went on to work for Air Nelson. He was a flight operations manager when he retired at age 65 in 2010. His children and grandchildren were aware of the story, but it is not something that has taken over their lives. It goes on and says the Crockett's, who had five children, separated soon after the incident. Wow. Najera, who is now Niger Gilmore, after her new marriage, new marriage to her husband Ray Gilmore, the pair who met during a blind date eight years ago married in a surprise ceremony at the Julia Wallace Retirement Village, blah, blah, blah. And then it says, uh, has this film changed my life, asked Gilmore. I guess it did. We had a phone call after the phone. We had phone call after phone call and people knocking on our door. David and the reporter became so obsessed that the doco was all they talked about. I switched off as we had five children and it was affecting all our lives. You know, I think sometimes when people witness these things, it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance in um, people. And there's, you know, when you have two opposing ideas that both make sense kind of jammed into your head at the same time. Now, some people, as we've talked about before, will take this phenomena of cognitive dissonance and they use it as a paradox. You know, where you have two ideas that are, that appear to be conflicting, but they're actually related. And so they'll take this cognitive dissonance and they'll use that as an opportunity to learn from this paradoxical incident. You know, I saw a UFO, it doesn't make sense, but, you know, it could be this or it could be that. It helps them some way. They're able to sort through things somehow. And if they can't, they kind of compartmentalize it. Other people when they encounter you know, this this uh, volume of cognitive dissonance where their world is just rocked by this UFO encounter, some people have a hard time dealing with it. And it can actually alter their personality, alter the way they see the world, and it can really uh, mess with their head. They almost, and sometimes they become disengaged, like this lady's talking about. Sometimes they become obsessed, like her husband. Both of these ways are their way of dealing with the cognitive dissonance, but both of them can have really negative side effects where some of the folks are able to just either, uh, you know, put this thing away in a back room somewhere and say, yeah, it happened. I don't understand it. But they don't let it control their life. 
and other folks are able to have an epiphany and say, okay, well, I guess the universe is a little bit bigger than I realized, and simply go on with their life. Now, it goes on here, it says, David Crockett dealt with health and a handful of effects after filming the strange objects. Now, this is another case of somebody who's had uh, ill health effects from encountering these things. To this very day, the incident has never left my mind. I'm also reminded of the event by people who come up and say, I saw you the other night on the Discovery or Science Channel. This effect, this the effect this historic sighting has had on all of us has certainly included a fair amount of stress. As for me, I was sleepless for several nights, and, half, and after having performed several overseas lectures on the sighting, became quite depressed. Crockett, who now lives in Hawaii, where he worked as a mango farmer, made a documentary about the incident and gave lectures, which took him around the world. He is hoping to make a new documentary to mark the 40-year anniversary. Of course, that would have been like three years ago. It subsequently changed my life. At the time, at that time in history, the UFO phenomena skeptics thought we were crazy and criticized us in many ways. I think you're always going to have that group of people that feels like they can bully uh, somebody who comes up with a new idea. That's what I believe. In 1978, most persons would not seriously consider that these were real objects and may even originate from other planets. I'm more likely to say from other dimensions myself. Over the years, Grant has amassed a massive collection of a newspaper and magazine stories. He scoured official records in Australia and New Zealand and lodged official information applications for long-forgotten files. Says the results are overwhelming or are overwhelmingly unhelpful in explaining the lights in that they and what they were doing in the lonely summer skies in New Zealand. Forty years on, I'm still very curious. My grandkids love to hear the story of my brush with UFOs. I just wish I could provide an ending. It goes on, it says, Grant was working at a TV1, now TV and Z1, in Christchurch in 1978, and now lives in Australia. It says, I was, I was a young journalist back then, fire, fired with zeal of telling stories, untold, and I helped tell this story, but the rest of the world, the scientists, the officials, the military, and status of all, for me, the media were all consumed with indifference and curious. Well, these stories require a little too much thought, I think, to sell the ad revenue that the mainline media is looking for, maybe. It says, so does he believe in UFOs? He says, I'm entirely skeptical of the notion of little green men, Martian annual probes, and all the rest of it. I Note that the number of UFO sightings has greatly diminished since video and digital cameras and phone cameras have become readily available. However, what we saw that night over Kanura was unidentified and still is. That's not correct. Um, UFO sightings have not decreased. They've exploded. And there's tons of more UFO uh, sightings recorded today than ever before. But you can kind of see here, it almost seems like this gentleman is, that's his coping mechanism maybe. The decommissioned Argosy now sits on land near the Malgoro Airport owned by the Blenheim filmmaker Paul Davison. It says he purchased the aircraft in 1991. This is the old uh, air cargo plane that they actually seen the, the UFO from, and here it is sitting around in a junkyard now. Or salvage, I guess you would say, just sitting there. It says the aircraft had special meaning to him in 2009. Davison made a documentary featuring interviews with pilots 
and crew from 1978. Davison, whose home was on land adjacent to the aircraft, has restored and refurbished the aircraft, oh boy, and runs flight simulation experiences complete with in-flight movies telling the story of safe air and meals. Passengers can dine at the cafe, blah, blah, blah. And then he talks about, the, he says here, we put it back together and tidied it up. It's unique to Marlboro. So, so they've taken this airplane, apparently, and refurbished it a bit so people can take uh, trips in to see it. It says, from from Thursday to go, to coincide with the first train sighting, Davison will be, be running a UFO-themed experience. So I guess at least someone's making a little income off of it. They've, they've rehabbed the airplane enough where people can come in and have a look around and see you know, where the people were sitting at when they witnessed these UFOs. Uh, it says people can sit in the actual seat, Catherine Startup said in, and then it says, so does Davison believe in UFOs? He says, I believe in the possibility of them. I got to know both pilots with my documentary. They got sick of people saying it was probably the lights of cars or lights of squid boats. These were professional pilots. We know what Venus looks like. This was not Venus. Everyone on board has said the event had a traumatic effect on their lives. Wow. Now, that's amazing. It says these accounts were pulled together with the help of Bruce McAbee. You know, what the thing I get from this is not only was this really a... a uh, an amazing UFO sighting slash encounter, but the negative reactions these people suffered because of peer pressure, uh, the fact that they were actively depersoned by the media and whoever controls the media, and that's something that we, I think, as individual experiencers or people who see UFOs, can combat. We don't have to pay attention to that. If you see a UFO, you may not know what you saw, but you know that it wasn't a weather balloon or a drone or a satellite. That's your reality. That's your experience, and you don't have to be. You don't have to subject yourself to being ostracized or depersoned by people who haven't had that experience or people who choose not to believe. And I think that's where these folks uh, maybe were just subject to so much attention. And to so much negative attention that it seems like a lot of them had some pretty negative effects on it from their own mental health. And the best thing I think you can do that, deal with a situation like that, is just let um, the debunkers' taunts uh, roll off your back like water off a duck's back. Until next time, this is UFO Warning. Over now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.